Hi, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Programs broadcast. I'm Dr. Brad Reedy, the Executive Clinical Director and Co-Founder of Evoke Therapy Programs. Happy to be doing this one tonight. We're continuing with a series on uh, the chapters from my newest book, The Audacity to Be You. Tonight's chapter is one of my favorites. I think it's one of the ones that, that I find the most enjoyable because I think there, there are a lot of uncommon ideas, uncommon thinking in this chapter. Um, perhaps that's that's because we have so many ideas that are proliferated in pop culture uh, around the idea around marriage that that I think a lot of those ideas don't get challenged. And so today we're going to try to peel back the layers and go a little bit deeper into it. So the title for the chapter is Marriage, Divorce and Psychosis. Uh, I, I think that 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 title will become apparent as we go as we go along tonight. Today is Monday, December 14th. 2020. So let's get right into what we want to talk about tonight. I love this poem. I, I, I borrowed it for the chapter epilogue, and I think it sets up um, quite well the, the title of the chapter and where, we'll be, where we will be going this evening. So I'm going to read it to you. Just you can read along with me if you're watching this live. Love is a temporary madness. It erupts like volcanoes and then subsides. And when it subsides, you have to make a decision. You have to work out whether your roots, well, uh, your roots have so entwined together that it is inconceivable that you you should ever be apart. You should ever part, because this is what love is. Love is not breathlessness. It is not excitement. It is not the promulgation of promises of eternal passion. That is just being in love, which any fool can do. Love itself is what is left over when being in love has burned away. And this is both an art and a fortunate accident. Those who truly love have roots that grow together each underground. And when all the pretty blossoms have fallen from their branches, they find that they are one tree and not two. And this is from Captain Corelli's mandolin. So I think it, it, it sets up the outline for this evening. We have a lot of things that we talk about when, when we, we try to describe what that early phase of romantic love is, is like. I talk about it in this chapter to begin. Phrases like, you complete me, or he is my everything, or she is my world. He is my best friend, my lover, and my biggest supporter. She is my better half. While all the above might sound wonderful and may express in a poetic sense the powerful nature of romantic love, these statements can also reveal a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be in a healthy, mature, and intimate relationship. The idea of two becoming one in a psychological sense may be the seed of later problems in the marriage. So that, that, that force that brings us together oftentimes has in it the seeds which later on uh, might become the problem, which might grow into a, a tree that we have to tend to, a tree that we have to, 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 to mend. Um, and to pay attention to. Otherwise, it, it'll, it'll kind of take over and, and become wild and become what eventually drives us apart. The idea that, that, some, that, that marriage is becoming one person is, if we're to take it literally, is a kind of psychosis. It's, it's, a, it's a mad idea. The idea that is oftentimes idealized that your partner is supposed to be your everything is a kind of psychosis, a kind of craziness. 
a kind of a delusional way of thinking. When we think about healthy marriage, when we think about healthy relationship, which takes, and we'll talk about this evening, a lot of work, a lot of compromise, a lot of sacrifice. When we think about that, it's really about two people, two human people who can live together if they need to, but decide not to. Decide that that the union and, and their togetherness brings them greater greater meaning and greater value to their lives. So oftentimes it is our dents and our holes and, and the things that we were left without from our own childhood that we look for in a partner. The the you know, I talk about in my own marriage that in in falling in love, I was able to soothe my, my wife's anxiety, right? To give her that sense of peace and, and comfort. It was one of my my gifts and my childhood wounds was to be able to provide that for her. She found herself soothed and connected and accepted and, and, and in turn looked at me with those eyes. And, and those eyes told me that I was now good and worthy. And we called that that blending of wounds, that, that fitting together of dense or, or puzzle pieces, we called that falling in love. And in the early phases, you know, food didn't matter. Sleep didn't matter. We could talk for for hours on end, of course. And there was in that a kind of delusional state. This kind of idealized idea of the relationship, which if, if not for that, we might not get married as couples, right? That's That's what pulls us together. What I believe as a therapist, having done my work over these years and had as many struggles and made as many mistakes as any or more is that 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 drive to be together is also the drive to heal ourselves. And if you get lucky enough, if you begin to to awaken to the reality of of, of who you are and, and what you what it means to be in a relationship and you have a partner, that's the real lucky thing. You have a partner who's willing to 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 wake up also from that delusion then you can begin to build a, a lifelong use, union one day at a time called a marriage. We'll talk more about that as we go. It's important, and, and this is the a premise that happens throughout the book. It's important to, to say that all of this is built on the foundation of a self to the extent we have a healthy and mature self is the extent to which we'll be able to be in an intimate relationship with somebody else. So here is that idea said and borrowed from, from Robert Bly and said uh, in the book. Robert Bly suggested he likened the development of a self to, to a round ball of light, a globe of energy. And he says this. One day we noticed that our parents didn't like certain parts of us, certain parts of that ball. So to keep our parents' love, we put those parts of us that they found unacceptable in a bag. He talked about this bag that we stuff things into that we drag behind us. Next, he says, teachers and peers have their say, telling us what is unacceptable. Bly describes this process using the imagery of a bag that we drag behind us. We put all of these parts of ourselves in the bag to keep from being alone. In middle school, high school, and college, the process 
accelerates and our stuffing of the bag fills it up larger and larger. Then, and this is a quote, Robert Bly directly, out of a round globe of energy, the 22-year-old ends up with a slice. We'll imagine a man who has a thin slice left and we'll imagine that he meets a woman. Let's say they are both 24. She has a thin, elegant slice left. They join each other in a ceremony and this union of the two slices is called a marriage. Even together, the two slices do not make a one person, unquote. While, the, while many imagine the fusion of two into one romantically, it can also be a condition of psychosis, a severe distortion of reality. The phrase crazy about you, for example, may be actually an accurate depiction of the early stages of romantic love. As the relationship grows, fissures are exposed, and later with time and pressure, they can become chasms. If we look close enough, we will inevitably discover that the early experience of love was flawed. Almost in every case, when I'm working with a couple who comes to me with some consideration, at least in distress, if not with the consideration of the possibility of divorce, when somebody comes to me in that, that state, it doesn't take a lot of creativity to trace back and find the elements of the problem in those early phases of romantic love. Like in my own case, my ability to soothe her, her fears and her anxiety, which is not, it's, it can be a virtue, right? It can be something kind that you do for somebody, but we were so rigid in this dynamic. I thought it was my job to make her happy. In fact, a lot of people describe marriage in that way to make my wife happy, to make my husband happy. I thought it was my job. I thought it was my role. And because I was able to do it in our courtship, we called it falling in love. And then I failed, right? We got married. We started to live our lives and I failed. And I failed again and again. And when I failed to soothe her, she, instead of looking at me adoringly with those eyes that told me that I was okay, that I was perfect, she looked at me with disappointment. And sometimes what came out of her mouth was, you're a bad husband. And of course, because I could not stand the distress of her pain, I couldn't stand to sit in, in the empathic misery that I felt of her distress and her pain. I called her a less than wife, a bad wife. And so we were at a point where we had to decide where was this going to evolve or was this just going to dissolve? In our case, doesn't have to be the case. We took some time away and essentially sorted out some of our baggage, some of our unprocessed, unlooked at pieces and began to see what our own responsibility was. And I'll talk about what mine was specifically and what hers was specifically. And we eventually were able to come back together in, in what we call affectionately now marriage 2.0. But that idea, not uncommon at all, that it is your job to make your spouse happy. That idea in a psychological sense is delusional. 
it's crazy it's it's not your in fact you're not capable of making your your spouse happy i love this quote and quoted in this chapter from from james hollis uh it's from a book called the search for the magical other excuse me it's called the eden project and the subtitle is the search for the magical other and dr hollis says i think that one of the problems in marriage is that people don't realize what it is they think it's a lifelong love affair and it isn't marriage has nothing to do with being happy it has to do with being transformed and when we and when the transformation is realized it is a magnificent magnificent experience but you have to submit you have to yield you have to give you can't just dictate he in the in this section of his book he refers a lot to joseph campbell's idea of, of a transformation Right? The work that we do at Evoke, um, whether you come to your our, our intensive programming or whether you have your child in our program, the work is about transformation. It's about be, unbecoming something. The thing that, that you had to be to, to keep your parents' love as a child. The thing that the culture and your classmates told you you, you had to be to keep their attention and affection. It's, it's about unbecoming those things, and it's about becoming a person, becoming a human being. The subtitle of my new book the, 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 is the Learning to Love Your Horrible Rotten Self, meaning just learning to love your human self. So all of these examples, all of these opportunities, all of these crises are an invitation to become a whole person, not to become a good person. No, in fact, just the opposite in many ways. But to become a human person, which is both good and bad, both beautiful and horrible, right? I talk about this all the time, this idea that the, the outcome of therapy sometimes is the realization that you're a disaster and a miracle all at the same time all at the same time. With intimacy, and this is a major premise in the book, with intimacy, you must surrender the need to be right. But what you pick up in return is so much better. You get to be a self, a human self, a human being. You get to be you. And that works. That's really the, this, I, 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 I wanted to write this book, number one, because my ideas are constantly evolving and each book that I write will be um, kind of a marker of, of my own evolution, my own thinking, my own growth. Um, but I also wanted to make sure that people understood that the principles from that first book, The Journey of the Heroic Parent, um, weren't about parenting. They were set on the stage in the scenery of parenting but it was about being a, being a person, being a self, and loving another. And while the role of partner or spouse is different in very important ways than the role of a parent, in the, the most fundamental ways, they, they share more similarities than not. So we, we go from this, this romantic phase to this mature and, and intentional state, this this evolved version of ourselves, this evolved uh, 
version of our marriage. One of the things that I tell couples oft, often is they often, I think, want to re reassure each other, which is not a bad want. Maybe they want to reassure me for fear that I might lose some kind of hope if, if they don't say this. They, they tell me that divorce is not an option. And what I say to them is it, it has to be an option. If divorce is not an option, then it's not really love. It, it, it was Harriet Lerner who, who said, and I paraphrased her earlier, that, that being in love, being in a committed relationship is the ability to live without your partner but not wanting to. If divorce isn't an option, then a couple of things are also true. One is that there's no choice to stay. It's essentially a prison, an imperative, a should or a shouldn't. And then any kind of behavior must be tolerated. I don't think it's good to think of divorce as a, as a, as a non-option for, for yourself. I think it's important to realize your spouse could leave you. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of leaving you that that is is a fight or flight reaction where you're constantly walking on eggshells. I'm not talking about that level of, of heightened uh, nervous system awareness, hypervigilance. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about on a much more fundam fundamental, consistent level. That that the idea that divorce exists means that you are choosing to stay in love. You're intending to stay in the relationship. Essentially, I talk about this idea of two projects in a marriage. Now, there are, are more, of course, but I see these so consistently in marriage. And of course, like most of my work, I draw it out of my own experience and my own experience with, with marriage in this case. The first job, the first responsibility or project, typically for, for one of the partners, is to tell the truth to show up as you are, to tell the truth about how you feel, what you want, what you don't like, what you like, what you need, to tell the truth. And the second project in intimacy in a marriage, a committed relationship, is holding the other person with love and kindness and patience. And often in marriage, I will see that, that there's a, a kind of a polarization that, that exists where each person is weak in one of those areas. If I just use my own marriage as an example, I struggled to tell the truth. And I struggled to tell the truth because um, when my truth upset, disappointed, angered, or frightened my wife, I put it in the bag that Robert Bly talks about. I hid it from the world. That was the way that I got through an escaped childhood intact or sort of intact. I learned what people wanted and I gave it to them. I, I compromised or gave up my authentic self to create a, a, a secure belonging. Now, in my case, which is often the case of the person who struggles with truth telling, I can listen to somebody else's truth, difficult, painful, frightening, upsetting truth more than most. So it's not, a, it's not a great challenge or it's not something I, I find my limit as much as many other people. 
I can listen to my wife or others express frustration, disappointment, anger, sadness. I can listen to them talk about change. I can listen to a lot. Not by any means perfect, but that's not the thing that that's not the area where I struggle. Now, if you flip it and look at my wife, it's exactly the opposite. She can tell me a lot. She's willing and able to talk a lot. She talks about, we talk about this fact that she has a, a high word quota. She can tell me her fears, her anxieties, her frustrations, her disappointments, and her needs. She's good at that. But because of the, the anxiety that she struggles with, she struggles more to hear and to hold my truth with love and kindness and patience and curiosity. So we start to polarize. I'm the pleaser. I try to make her happy. I try to tell her what she wants to hear. She tells me a lot and I listen. And just the other day we were talking, there was something I told her after a difficult day. I was struggling with our conversation. And I told her at the end of the day, I said, I'm struggling with our conversation today. And she said, what would you like me to do about that? And I said, just first and foremost, and maybe only, just thank me for telling you. You can just say, I'm so glad that you told me. That would be enough. Just listen to it. So ask yourself in intimacy, do you find yourself being the one who can listen and hold people's uh, potentially triggering truths? Better than average? Do you find yourself more willing to please, thinking that if somebody's upset with you, that you've done something wrong and therefore you have to bend yourself into a position to make them happy? These are often, it's often a, a pairing that I will see in a couple. And again, to make it clear, my wife and I both have both parts in us and both projects in us. But we would both agree that my job my project, my focus is to learn to tell the truth more. And her job, her project, the emphasis, the difficult thing for her is to learn to listen to difficult things with more patience and curiosity and compassion. It's, it's the same thing I talked about in the previous chapter about intimacy. I talk about the idea that talking, that's why talking is a taking thing. Talking tends to be a taking thing. And listening tends to be a giving thing. It's not always true. To share your authentic truth is a gift that you give to somebody, but you're asking somebody to hold you when you share that. And when you're listening to somebody, you're, you're ideally suspending or putting aside any triggers or reactions or you're not being activated at all and you're holding a safe place for them. And in intimacy discussions, as I said in chapter four about meaningful love, the, the, the press, all the press is on the talking. Brene Brown is famous for talking about showing up and telling your truth. And that absolutely is a, a large part of intimacy. But the part that doesn't get the press near enough is the person who's doing the listening. So when couples come to us, a lot of times what I will say to our intensive program, I'll, I'll, I'll point out that the person that's complaining, that's not, they're not getting enough from their partner, it's, it's often a wife to a husband, 
if, if it's not a same-sex couple. Um, the wife is saying, I want more. I want to hear more what's going on. It's important for you to get it out, and I want to hear it. We often find that she's actually contributing to his quietness, right? Her reaction and his own childhood wounding that tells him when his wife gets upset, he's done something wrong because that's what he learned in his own childhood. Instead of the wife in this example, and I know I'm using genders and, and it can be same sex couples, same sex couples and, and the dynamic can be flipped, but I'm, I'm speaking just in one example. So in this example, the wife, we, we, we learn to, to, to talk about and to focus on your job is to not to get your husband to talk more. That's his job. We'll be clear about that in just a moment. Your job is to listen more or listen better. And we say to the husband, you know what? You have an equally difficult task. It's not your job to get your wife to listen better. That's her job. Your job is to tell the truth no matter what, even if the reaction is not what you want, to learn to tolerate distress, upset, anxiety, fear, and anger, but to tell the truth assertively and kindly as often as possible, as often as the relationship will allow. So it's very easy for the talker to focus on the listener. It's very easy for the listener to focus on the talker. But as is the case in all of our family systems work, we ask or invite a shift from focusing on other people and what you can change to focusing on what can you change. What, what, what I say is, what is your project? So ask yourself. If you want the other to talk more, you probably have a listening project. If you want the other person to not be reactive, to listen better, you probably have a talking problem, a showing up honest and authentically problem. And so what do we do? Instead of two human beings, we turn others into the bad object, the bad wife, the, the, the bad husband. In this chapter, I tell the story that took place in this chair right here where I'm sitting. It was a Saturday afternoon. I had just finished running an intensive, and it went well, as almost all of them do. I was spent. It was a Saturday afternoon, and I was ready for, for a day and a half of my weekend. And my wife came into the room upset about something I could tell and said to me, I know you just finished an intensive, and I would like to talk to you if you can listen. If you can't listen, I'll call my best friend Donna and I'll talk to her. But, I, but I, I need to talk to somebody about this. So everything ran through my head. Our typical pattern is I would probably try to say yes because I can't say no. I think I'm supposed to say yes. I'm afraid of being punished for saying no. I'm afraid of being a bad object or a bad husband. So I'll try to say yes. I'll have thoughts of resentment in my head like, I can't believe she's asking me this on the tail end of what I just did. I can't believe I can't even get an hour off. She shouldn't even ask. Those are the kinds of thoughts that I have. 
So on this particular day, I decided I would take the risk and tell the truth. And I said, I would rather not right now if possible. If I could have the rest of the day off from kind of a difficult process, conversation, that would be ideal for me. And then tomorrow, if it's still there, I'd be happy to talk to you. And yes, if you can talk to Dawn instead of me, that would be fantastic. She'd, she'd signal to me it was safe by, by bringing up the, the Dawn example. The Dawn example. So I appreciated that. That let me know. And then it was remarkable. She responded with, okay. And she walked away from the door to my office. She was a little bit down the rest of the day. She was a little bit withdrawn. And, and if I had been activated, you know, what would have happened for me is I would have thought, oh, I'm being punished. She's punishing me and withdrawing from me. I would have wanted to engage her. That's my old pattern to get her to talk to me. And we would have ended up in, in, in the old cycle, my anger and resentment and her frustration that I'd set up a, a no-win situation for her. But I tolerated the distance. It made sense. She was upset and I couldn't hear it. So I tolerated. She said when we talked about it later that she was trying not to punish me, but she couldn't engage me. She couldn't give me the reassurance that I was craving that was really a, a, a symbol of my own childhood wound of abandonment in these kinds of situations when I didn't come through. Now, on her side of the equation, what she could have done is she could have turned me into the bad husband, right? I turned her into the bad wife in our old pattern. If I had gone through that resentment stage, she could have made me the bad husband. She could have said, I can't believe you can't talk to me. You have all this time for your clients, but you don't have any time for me. I wish your clients could see that you, you're you not able to do at home what you teach in your programming. In essence, she could have turned me into the bad object or the bad husband, but instead she said, okay. And she took care of herself and I took care of myself. And it wasn't warm and it wasn't fuzzy. It was human. Terrifying, difficult. And as simple and subtle as that short exchange is, that took us 20 years. And we don't always do it like that. But that exchange took us 20 years to get to. And it's not common. Most of the time, we take our distress, our upset, our hurt, our fear, and we make other people bad. That's the defense. What we did that day is we treated each other like humans. Instead of me being a bad husband, an uncaring husband, a husband who's too focused on his job, I was just a human husband. And she had reached the end of my limits. And instead of making her a bad wife because she was asking of me, when clearly I was depleted and had given all that I had given that day, that, that week, instead of turning into turning her into a bad wife, she was just a human wife. The audacity to be you is, the idea is, and the idea in all of this work in the Oak family, whether it's the intensives or, or the wilderness program, is learning to be a person and allowing the people around you to be people also.
to be human. Like I said, in considering divorce, if one looks close enough, one can see how the problems were there in the beginning and in many ways were the reason for falling in love. And growing up will expose the emotional immaturity of the other person or other people in your life and reveal the fractures that were present from the beginning. I talk about how our dents fit together and we call that falling in love. Here's the quote from the book. Because children are required to navigate their parents' defenses to survive childhood, they develop in such a way that they end up relating to people who are the same, sh who are the same shape, size, and color of their parents. In other words, we become shaped by a certain kind of compromised person. And as we grow up, we are inclined to relate to those same kinds of people. The shape of our wounds predisposes us to fit with the others who mirror in some ways our original contexts. The work then is to come to know this by unraveling our childhoods, good, bad, and in between, so that we make friends with ourselves. And if we are lucky, as I am, if we are lucky, we find a partner who is willing to travel a similar path that is their own. You're all dented. I'm dented. She's dented. We're all dented. And those dents, they, they, they create a, a dynamic where we find people. And that in some ways, fill those, those holes and those dents. But that doesn't work. That doesn't, unless you simply compromise your, your, your by giving up your will to, to live the richest life and just kind of resign yourself to, to a life of kind of quiet desperation, that doesn't work. And that quiet desperation usually comes out of, well, you need to stay married. And so you got, you can't get divorced anyway. And so you just have to stay unhappy. But if you, if you take the other fork in the road, you, you, you wake up and you work on yourself and it never ends. At least I've never seen it end with anybody. In fact, the most enlightened people I've ever met in my life are quick to tell you how the work continues throughout their life. So we learn. I always say this to, to people. When people tell me that their ex-partner is a narcissist, for example, or, or their ex-partner is an anxious person or a borderline or an alcoholic, then pick your diagnosis, pick your, your description. Whenever somebody tells me that, I think that's interesting, but not the most interesting thing. It's interesting that your ex spouse is a borderline or, or a depressed or a narcissist. That That's interesting. But what I find fascinating is why did you fall in love with a narcissist? Why did you fall in love with an alcoholic? Why did you fall in with a depressed person or an anxious person? That's what I find fascinating. The answer to that question holds the key that unlocks the universe for you. Because that tells me about you. That's your chance to live a, a well-lived life going forward. So yes, we can get clear with some time and perspective about the, the monstrosity that is your ex-partner or your partner if you're still married. We can do that. 
but why did you fall in love with them? And oftentimes people will say to me, well, they weren't there. They weren't like this when we were dating. And the answer is not in such vivid living color ways. Yes. Not in such demonstrative ways. Probably you're right. But it would be an extraordinarily rare example to find that that aspects of that personality disorder that we've now identified weren't there in the beginning. It would, in my experience, I've never seen it. I've never seen it where it wasn't there in some small parts, often much more than we're willing to be conscious of. Because in the beginning, it served us, like I described it in my marriage. I, I found this video, a friend sent it to me. It was a, a monologue by the actor Will Smith. It was it was years ago that he left this, this monologue on Facebook. I know since then, in the, in the past year or so, Will and Jada Pinkett Smith have, have been very open about their marriage and the difficulties. And so this, for me, takes on richer and richer meaning. But but here, this is Will, Will talking to this, this video that a friend sent to me many years ago. He says, whether or not a person is happy is utterly out of your control. We came into this false romantic concept. He's speaking of he and his wife. We came into this false romantic concept that somehow when we got married, that we would become one and that we realized, and we what we realized is that we were two completely separate people on two completely separate individual journeys and that we were choosing to walk our separate journeys together. But her happiness was her responsibility and my happiness was my responsibility. We decided that we were going to find our individual, eternal, private, separate joy and then we were going to present ourselves to, to the relationship and to each other already happy. He says to his wife at one point, if I'm not making you happy, I want you to go find happy. Prove to me that it's even possible, he says in this monologue. Prove to me that you can even do it. And what they both realize is that you don't come to the other one with your, 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 your empty cup out begging for the other partner to fill it. You come to the marriage already happy. And you present yourself to the other person. And when you demonstrate love in that relationship, you demonstrate it by giving. Now, everybody's human. Everybody has needs. Everybody's vulnerable. Everybody has moments of taking. So we're talking about a, a fundamental, uh, a deeper place when we're talking about this. Not moment to moment or day to day. When we do our work, we change the frame from turning the other into something bad to seeing the other as simply a human being. I, I can't overstate this enough. If, if we can drop, whether as a parent or a spouse, if you can drop the idea that the goal is to be a good person, you then allow the other people in your life to be human beings also. If I need to be a good dad, if I need to be a good husband, guess what I am going to do to my children and my wife when they're upset or distressed or disappointed 
or angry or hurt by me. I'm going to make them wrong. But if I have given up the crazy, stupid idea that our culture teaches us, if I give up the idea that I need to be good and I just accept that I'm a horrible, rotten self, then you get to be mad at me and sad at me and frustrated with me and disappointed with me. You get to be you. Do you see that? If we change the idea from being a good father, a good husband, a good mother, a good wife, a good spouse, a good parent, if we change from that to just being a human spouse with limitations, then everybody will find the limits of at some point because everybody's got limits. So if we shift from being thinking the goal is to be good to just being human, we get to be ourselves and so does everybody else around us. And when we reach the, the, the edges of our limits, we realize that we need to go take care of ourselves in whatever way that looks like so that we can come back to the people that we love and be there for them. Falling in love is profound when we can be ourselves in a relationship and who we are is tolerated, even welcomed. And finally, from the prophet Khalil Gibran, he says, let there be spaces in your togetherness and let the winds of the heavens dance between you. Love one another, but make not a bond of love. Let it rather be a moving sea between the shores of your souls. Love is not fusion. Marriage is not fusion. Like I said, I believe I said it in the first book, and it, it's maybe more appropriate in this chapter than any of the other chapters. 25 years ago, sitting at a, at a wedding breakfast where an old uncle made a toast and he said to the bride and the groom, if you're not fighting with each other, then one of you is an idiot. Part of, of intimacy requires that we don't lose our sovereign sense of self. We don't lose who we are. We don't lose our, our humanity. And also at the same time, we hold space for the other person's humanity. So, so, so what are the take-homes before I get to any questions? Um, it's really important that we understand our madness. That is, our dents, our wounds, the, the edges and limits of our capacity our propensities for mental illness. Um, are you good at talking, but not as good at listening in a safe way? Are you a good listener, but you don't show up and tell the truth? What is your madness? And we shift from making the goal. I mean, that's the whole premise of the book. You know, it's, it's the epigraph of the entire book. From the letters of Juliet, I borrowed the quote, why were each of us taught the notions of being correct or good when those very notions ensured our, our failure in the world? The irony is, folks, if we can give up, in fact, we have to give up being good to love, to truly love. Because being good means that we're going to require people around us to feel, think, and look at us a certain way. And when we surrender that idea 
and people just get to be themselves, we actually give them something. We give them safety. We give them love. But we have to build a self. We have to, we have to find it. We have to heal. We have to un, un, uncover. We have to unravel ourselves. We have to understand. Ultimately, we have to learn to be us. There's a, there's a maturity that comes in this process that takes tremendous work. And if what I'm saying to you sounds crazy or strange or, or convoluted, it's okay. It took me 30 years to figure this out, to say it this way. It is contrary to, to what popular culture teaches us, what, what even pop psychology teaches us. What's your project? What are you? You can find your project by, by, by sometimes wondering what your complaint is with your partner. Like I said earlier, if you complain that your partner doesn't talk enough, you probably have a safety issue. And if you think your partner can't hear you, you probably have an honesty issue, a courage issue about showing up and telling the truth. So know what your project is and make that your focus. One time my therapist said to me, you know, many of my sessions and, and my wife, the same is true of her, are spent understanding her dilemma, right? I sit in therapy. I, I tell a story about my wife and my therapist accurately diagnoses, diagnoses, uh, he gives a diagnosis to my wife. Years ago, after he gave a diagnosis to somebody in my life, and it wasn't my wife in this particular example, I said to him, but I don't say that to this person, right? And he's, she said, you do not say this to that person. And I said, so I'm just supposed to know this. She shook her head, yes, you're just supposed to know this. And I said, and knowing this gives me compassion. It does that. And I said, and then knowing this makes me realize that their behavior is not about me. And she said, it also does that. And knowing this helped me to understand how I can support them. And she said, it does that. You learn to love and stay in love with your other person's dilemma. I say that to my wife once in a while. She'll ask me the other day. She said, are you still in love with my dilemma during a particularly difficult day? And I said, yes, I am. And I'll ask her, are you in love with my dilemma? And she said, yes, I am. Remember that talking tends to be a taking thing. Not always. But it tends to be in that listening tends to be a giving thing. And just know when you're doing it. See, I'm the one who has the hard time telling the truth. I'm the one whose project it is to tell the truth. And what I am sure of and I talk about this in this chapter, is like Charlie Brown and Lucy in the Penis cartoon. I am sure that this time, if I go to kick the ball, you're going to pull it away, and I'm going to fall flat on my back again. But you convince me that you want to hear the truth. You convince me that you want to hear it. You tell me that it will be okay no matter what I say, and I fall for it. As a little kid watching those Peanuts cartoons, and when I was young, 
It was the only cartoon. It was one of the only two cartoons on Sunday Los Angeles area TV. I just wanted Lucy to just just hold it one time. She never did. I never saw her do it. That's the experience. Intimacy is not warm and fuzzy. It's not just warm and fuzzy. It's not pink and soft. It's not erotic and close and warm. It's, it's all those things, but it's also terrifying, horrifying, painful, difficult, scary. It's all of it. For the person who struggles listening, it's listening to hard things and containing them. And for the person whose project it is to tell the truth, it's saying the, the scariest thing regardless of the reaction. And divorce is an option because the idea that divorce exists and is an option is the only thing, is, is a reality that means that you're choosing love, that you're choosing togetherness. All right, Malia, I'm happy to take any questions that have come in. Somebody says, I, I find the hardest place to be a self is within my family and especially my marriage. I thought that would not be the case because it would be it should be easier where I'd feel most safe. It is the one place I want to show up authentic, but it is also where I fear it the most. Is it because it is where I have the most to lose? It is because it's where you have the most to lose for sure. And it also is because you have chosen and designed a family around you that is mirroring your wounds, that is asking you to, to transcend. I used to say to students in the wilderness, in our wilderness program, I would say to them, they would say, I get along with my friends, my classmates, my peers. Uh, I get along with everybody except for my parents. And I would say to them, well, I hope so. Getting along with friends is easy. If you can't get along with friends and you're crazy, I would tease them. Really, the only measure of our mental health in terms of relationships are the people that we're closest with. That's the only measure about our sanity, our level of functioning. So yes, you have the most to lose. They're the people who have the access to your triggers. They're the people that you've either chosen to be with or have created and raised in such a way that they're aware unconsciously of all of your wounds, all of your triggers. It's why I, 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 I quote so often Ram Dass, who says, if you think you're enlightened, spend a week with your family. They are the ones. Those are the circumstances and relationships that will expose the, 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 the fractures, the, the, the fissures, the vulnerabilities, for sure. Somebody writes, our daughter is at Evoke, and we are looking for an aftercare program for her right now. It's hard to find one that has the same quality like Evoke. Will Evoke consider to run an extended care treatment center or therapeutic boarding school in the future? Maybe, probably not. Maybe. If one of you is a venture capitalist and you want to start one, I'm open to the idea. But uh, right now, we spend all of our time and, and resources doing this in our intensive program also. But thank you. It's 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 a standard that 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 I found somewhere else with my therapist principally. Dr. J.D. Gill, and I have held that standard up for our, our therapists in our program at Evoke. 
Absolutely. Someone says, I'm trying to do my own work and build my own self, but still I don't feel like the way, love the, the way I, I need by my husband. I feel neglected and ignored. What's the point of, of marriage if we don't fill each other's love tank? That's the question I often get. It's it's not about going away. It's not about, yes, we, we, we share. My wife gives, I give. When I said to her the other day that we were having a discussion that day that wasn't working for me, I wasn't saying that there are times when I need you. We were there for each other. This is more fundamental. It's deeper than kind of the, the, the moments of the day. So the answer is, like, like Will Smith said, like James Hollis says, like, like Khalil Gibran says, the answer is you present yourself to the marriage happy and you, you're there to, 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 to support your spouse to go where they need to go. And that takes great capacity and, and emotional resources. A great example of learning this is either listen to the podcasts, watch the YouTube webinars, or, or read the books in succession, The Night in Rusty Armor by Robert Fisher, and the sequel written by J.D. Gill, The Letters of Juliet to the Night in Rusty Armor. And you'll see what I'm talking about. In The Letters of Juliet, she doesn't, she doesn't, she realizes that she's not been putting into the marriage, right? The knight in the first one realizes that he's not being who he is. He's covering everything up. And she realizes that she's not giving to the marriage. She's asking but not giving. It's a great metaphorical, allegorical illustration of, your, of the answer to your question. Someone writes, gosh, after so many notes, this last comment by you says it all for me. The wedding toast. If you're not fighting, one of you is an idiot. Well, I'm the idiot. I do not have a sovereign sense of self. Years ago, I knew that was much, so much of the issue. I knew I was the one who wasn't the fighter. I was the peacemaker. I have realized through so much work, my struggling children and looking inward that I am so undifferentiated. I remain on the jagged, crooked, crooked journey most of the time looking forward to the next rock to climb. Thank you. You are absolutely welcome. And you're, you're welcome because me too. You know, as I close this tonight, I'll go to the upcoming announcements. I just want to say to you, I'm just giving you the wisdom that somebody gave to me through my crooked journey. And it didn't come gracefully. It doesn't come gracefully. Um, it comes painstakingly slow. And it's an arduous, arduous task and journey. And I wouldn't trade it and, and, and don't trade it for the world. All right, let me get to upcoming announcements. And then if there are any questions left over, you can see on the slide if you have, um, if you have an interest in intensives. We are still doing intensives in person. We have a quarantine period and a testing period. So uh, the next in-person one is January 6th. That's one that I'm running. We also have online ones that are more affordable that of course um, don't give you exposure to COVID. So January 13th through 15th is our next online one. Um, they're fantastic online also. They're, they're shorter, they're, they're less expensive. Um, they're kind of uh, an opportunity to give, I think a lot of people an experience they couldn't otherwise have. We have our Finding You 2. We're going to be doing in-person 
in April, April 28th through May 2nd, that will fill up and it will fill up a long time ahead of schedule. If you want to do a, a pursuits trip, which is an adventure trip, think therapy light, think sober fun for adults or for a family, even for in-between programming, this can be an opportunity to have some, some therapeutic support while still doing something fun, creating a, a, a specialized um, trip anywhere in the world. We're also going to have a spring break trip um, this, this spring for folks. We'll be announcing that on our next webinar. We have support groups for uh, alumni of our wilderness program, current and former uh, parents. So our next one is December 17th at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. If you are an uh, alumni of our intensive program, the next one is January 12th at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Any questions uh, or information, you can contact Malia at evoketherapy.com. We ask all current families to go to six 12-step support groups, any combination of Al-Anon, CODA, Families Anonymous, or adult children. Or you can go to refugerecovery.org or nami.org for other classes or groups or resources in your area that are free of charge. All of these broadcasts are available on any podcast app. Just go to the podcast app and search Finding You in Evoke Therapy Podcast. You can also find all of these on soundcloud.com. I usually get these, these, these broadcasts. I do them live in the evening and then by the next morning around 10 o'clock mountain time. They'll go live on the podcast platform, but go to the podcast app on your phone, whichever one you have, subscribe to us, rate us. Um, when you subscribe to us, it will let you know when the new one is uploaded. It'll give you a, a, a notification. You can find Evoke Therapy on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Evoke Therapy um, or on Instagram. You can find the intensives program using the handle at Evoke Therapy Intensives. On Facebook, you can find either Evoke Therapy programs or Evoke Therapy Intensives, also our blog has new and, up, new and updated information all the time. My two books, The Journey of the Heroic Parent and The Audacity to Be You are out. The, the audio book for The Audacity to, Be out, Audacity to Be You is out now, narrated by me in my own voice. So go to amazon.com for that or Audible or I, iTunes actually. It's available through the Apple Bookstore also, the, the audio version. Otherwise, the print version is available on Amazon. Um. Upcoming webinars, uh, I'm going to be, uh, it'll be this Wednesday, this Wednesday, December 16th. I'll take any questions uh, left over. It's a live forum to ask any questions about this or anything else. So this Wednesday, December 16th, 16th at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time, live Q&A. Then, in fact, I might, I'm going to ask if I can have a guest speaker next week. I might even ask Emma Reedy to do it. Uh, I think she said she would do it. So maybe you'll hear from Emma next week. I'll be back on December 28th at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time going over Chapter 6, Knowing Mental Health. And then you can see the rest of the schedule on our website or here. Thank you for joining me this evening. I'm so happy to be sharing this, 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 this journey with you. Thank you for the work for and on behalf of the people that you love in your life. Thank you for the work that you're willing to do and your willingness to look inside and explore your own, your own self. Have a great evening. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. Take care. Bye-bye.